seven people attacked one person and they got six bucks. I, I mean, <laughs> why are seven people attacking one person? Jamie said, oh, they got a buck a piece. <laughs> oh, yes. To me, the mentality shows just a group of people that just want to go beat up on someone. Okay. It's just a mentality of violence and that whole disregard for life. Because you're right, six dollars. What's the point? You're not you're not really there to get any money, right? And isn't that the whole point of this crime that happened to Bill Little? Is that what they get, Tammy? What was the exact dollar amount? It was less than a hundred bucks. Snow Files, Season Three, Episode Forty: The Twin Blue Line. Isaac Gaston, Alternative Suspect. Q and A. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. I was coming out of my parents' bedroom and I was walking into her living room and I do not remember where we went. Um, before this, but uh, it was at night, and I don't remember why I walked in the living room, and when I was walking back towards our kitchen, there was a man, tall man, standing, leaning against our threshold, staring at me, and it, it, it shocked me, and I said, hey, dude, who are you, and I, I remember, I never remember, I'll never forget the name Scott, um, and in the brief few seconds that we interacted with each other, I will never remember the, I'll never forget the, um, it was a toboggan that he was wearing, um, like a large trench coat. It almost seemed like he was dressed like he was homeless. Um, and the floor around him was wet. It was like he, he literally stepped out of a pool, um, and just dripping wet all over the, the carpet. And he was covered in blood and he had several, I could, I could not figure out if they were stab wounds or bullet holes. And I was too young to really understand what was going on. But, um, the older I got and the more I talked to my mother, uh, I figured out that they were, the more I thought about it, they were stab wounds. Um, he had three or four of them in his, uh, he had two in his chest, two in his gut. Um, and after saying Scott, uh, I was shocked. And in the blink of an eye, he was gone. What happened at Braley Pond, episode three, the energy around us is now available. Download today on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for joining us for this week's Q&A segment, where we dodge rabbit holes, slay inaccuracies, and untangle this web one fiber at a time. Let's get started. As we get started here, Tam, can you elaborate a little more on your experience with collaborating with Jamie about the case and suddenly identifying Gatson and the leads together? What was it like for you? I mean, what did it feel like then and how does it feel now after so many years with really this big, huge aha moment that has never come to fruition legally? 
Well, we were just going back and forth about the case. This was really early on, maybe even within the first year that he and I started corresponding. I was going through the case files. He had sent me everything, his post-conviction petition, everything he had. And I just had a lot of questions. So we talked about it a lot. Then one day on the phone, he said, I'm just, I'm going to send you this picture. I'm not going to tell you anything about it, but just, just let me know what you think. And then he sent it to me. And the only thing I thought was, holy shit, that's Gutierrez's composite. That was crazy. I was floored by it. Uh, that was the first time I saw a comp- I saw a picture that looked exactly like the composite. So I put it out on the Facebook pages. I was just asking folks if anybody knew knew who that was because all he had was that picture in his uh, discovery. It was part of the discovery that he received in 2007, I believe. So a couple of people private messaged me with his name and and they asked to remain anonymous. And we've always respected that. So a few years later, when we actually started getting lead sheets, that's when Gaskin's name started popping up. Then to find out that he wasn't cleared for the time of the crime was just incredible. I mean, it's really frustrating that we don't know how he was cleared. And I know that was an aha moment, but it's been so many years and we found we found so much stuff that there's been a lot of aha moments. So it's, this is, this podcast is such a great exercise because it forces you to go back, forces us to go back and just look through everything like that. And you remember, that's a great question because you remember how it felt when you saw that. I mean, we've all seen the photo and listeners can go look at the photo too on our podcast page. Getson looks almost identical to the composite, you know, the original composite photo. But then again, he has no pierced ear and he has no scar. Two things we often repeat ourselves when we're defending Jamie, that he doesn't match either composite. What do we make of that? Well, I thought about this for a while, and I think that the original cops stopped pursuing Jamie because of that exact defect. And also Gatson, too. They were probably were just like, oh, no pierced ear, no scar, let's move on. Um, But then cold case detectives what was it, like eight years later, they didn't give the same consideration to Jamie and they pushed him through regardless of those inconsistencies because they were already after him. But what do you guys think now about the glaring mismatch? I mean, I I agree with that. I, I think it's spot on about them not giving the same consideration to Jamie. But just to take it a bit further, I personally believe that the state was preparing for this as early as 93. Recall Martinez composite was released around 93. And so was that memo that the state hid from us where Katz was trying to make a case to indict Jamie around that time. So that was around the same time. So poof, no chin scar, no earring, round face, completely different characteristics. Um, there was only one article published when they first released the other composite, Martinez's composite. And it said something like there may have been two people and that then they posted both of the composites. After that, it was only the one Martinez created round face, no chin scar, no earring. And only that composite 
was posted as the primary suspect after that time. The other one just disappeared. Never another mention of that guy, even though he was on the reward flyers that the family had put together. Gutierrez Composite was on that. So when Katz and Barkas took over the case, the investigation in 98, even though they told everyone that they were interviewing, that they were going back to talk to everyone in the case from all the police reports, they didn't bother to talk to anyone related to those police cleared because they didn't match the first composite. The sole focus was on Jamie, and they never again said anything about the chin scar or anything or that there might be two people. They just completely changed everything. And it's really obvious when you look through the reports that after Katzenbarkas took over the case, they solely focused on Jamie. That was it. There was no reinvestigation. It was let's indict Jamie. So this first composite that looks just like Gatson, that was based off of Gutierrez's recollection? of who he saw in the yes. gas station. Okay. Yes. So then that makes perfect sense that that's why this could be so accurate and look so much like somebody else is because Gutierrez was actually in there with somebody and face to face with Bill Little and the other person who was making him feel uncomfortable. And then we have Martinez who all along we've always thought Martinez never saw anybody at all. But just to refresh people's memory, that would be Martinez would be describing this guy and having someone draw a picture of a man for the second composite that he supposedly bumped into who was walking out of the gas station when um, he was putting air in his tires. And we all think that that's just not true, that he didn't see anybody there at all. And, you know, we went over that in depth in like, you know, three episodes with testimony from Jeff Pilo that nobody was there. And, um, you know, just broke apart his testimony, how it changed over 10 years from that not really being the case to all of a sudden these incredible details about it. So that does speak true to what you're saying, Tammy, that all of a sudden now you have a round face composite, no scar, no earring, because, you know, he's trying to just make something up that gels with what they wanted. Yeah. And, you know, there there were more details, too, like a ready in the first composite, in, you know, the night of the crime, there was discussion about a ruddy, a ruddy complexion, sunken in face, you know, thin nose. That's why the, these composites are so much different. Neither one of them look like Jamie. People have said that first composite looked like Jamie until they saw a comparison of Gaston's picture next to that composite. Then you're like, wow. But also, composites are uh, are subjective do you do you agree Bruce do you know have you seen cases you know where people were misidentified in composites is that Adam that Tennessee case oh yeah people know. are misidentified all the time and the picture in that case looks a lot like Adam you know the innocence project talks about this all the time about needing double blind we talk about it too I don't know how much we can really put into these composites to begin with, because there's been so much misidentification. Up to 25% of wrongful conviction cases are based on that. You can check my numbers on that, but there's a lot. I mean, it happens a lot. Misidentification is right. a major problem. Right. And also in this, in, in this case, the cops that were working the case were the ones showing the photo lineups. And that's a big no-no too. That it, that's all supposed to, like you said, double blind. You're not supposed to have the cop because that can 
that can be suggestive as well. And it um, often is suggestive, even if a police officer doesn't realize they're doing it, they're doing it. I mean, it, even subconsciously, they could be pointing to the person they want the uh, witness to identify. It's dangerous. It really is because it holds so much power in court. Once an identification is made, the jury, they really latch onto those things. They don't realize how many errors occur. But the fact remains that he did look exactly like the I know that's the, and we and we established that he didn't have an alibi. And in I, this you know, case, we have a guy with no alibi that looks just like the picture, and they and, still don't investigate him. Another thing I was thinking is he had no chin scar, but that's they went to go talk to him two months later after the tips came in. So how many weeks, months was it since the actual crime? That probably doesn't even matter anymore. Really, when, it, when my point being is it should definitely be part of the investigation. They have this this image, you know, this drawing, a composite, and they have a guy with no alibi that looks just like him. In the investigation phase, that should be thoroughly gone over. That's a totally different idea than being used as evidence in trial, because by that time, then you'd have a, all the evidence you need on top of the composite to make your case against the person. But in the investigation stage, they completely dropped the ball on that. He should have been thoroughly investigated because he looks just like him. I don't know how they could have gotten it any closer. I look at these pictures and I'm like, this is the guy right here. <laughs> well, what, you know, what I, what I kept thinking as I was going back and reading all these reports is that they were so focused in the beginning on Jamie and Palumbo and Keneally. If you look at this time frame, that's when they're tracking them down, trying to chase them down. You know, like, you know, it's just like it's, they're just so sure that it's them, these leads were turned in the next day. And Leslie's right. They didn't even look at him. They didn't even go talk to him until, was it May 28th or something like that? These leads were turned in the next day. So they weren't really, you know, they got people tapping them saying, hey, this, this, is, this guy looks just like him. This guy looks just like him. This guy looks just like him. And then I don't know. I, I feel like they were even focused then on uh it's like tunnel vision right and i don't want to i'm thinking i'm getting sidetracked by getting into the misidentification things because that's not really the focus shouldn't be on that here the focus should be on the fact that they had this right in front of them and they didn't investigate it because with the brazil case you mentioned him adam he did look like the guy but you you investigate him and then you find out that no he doesn't there's no other evidence that leads to him so even though he's a similar appearance it's not him but you investigate. You know, even Kirk Bloodsworth, the most famous DNA case, because he was the first death row case, he was misidentified. So those things are important, but I don't know if they really relate so much to this, because I think this is just blatant negligence and not investigating the leads. And Ron Cotton, I, I, and I guess I'm just trying to compare it to people that actually did look like the composites, because right. wasn't Ron, didn't Ron Cotton look like, look very similar? similar yeah, and then uh, also there was an identification of actual victim identification which is huge um right but that's a great story for people to learn about but kirk bloodsworth he just looked like a guy that similar to another guy that was in the area and he just got misidentified first death row case overturned by dna so these things happen all the time if people do the research i just think that in this case the focus is really just on complete negligence especially when cats and barkas took it over they just they didn't care about that stuff because it didn't point to the guy they wanted why didn't they just ask Gutierrez if it was Gatson? Like, I, that's what I don't get. You could have just done a, 
a lineup like they did with Jamie and Ben. Like, was it any of these guys that, you know, they just couldn't have cared less. Isn't it interesting that he wasn't, uh, that Gaston wasn't in that lineup? Right. And the other thing is they're saying that Gatson used to hang out frequently there. And, you know, we see that he's a, a kind of a rough guy. He could have been in there causing a problem and harassing Bill and not have been the murderer. So with all of this problems about, oh, the timing that Gutierrez said he was there didn't match later. We're not sure. It could have been before. It could have been hours later. I mean, if they had just went and asked, we'd have all those answers right now. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snowfiles Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the join our Patreon button. Let's talk about Gatson's charges. He's clearly a violent and impulsive person with emotional problems. It was shocking to hear that he was actually convicted of taking liberties with a 13-year-old girl, crazily attacking guards with urine, and threatening them with a soap sock, mugging multiple people, battery charges, etc. He was also accused of raping and holding a woman hostage, all within years of this crime, and then continued to live a volatile life since. Do these patterns fit with someone who would have held up a gas station and then murdered the clerk in a robbery gone wrong? Well, I mean, we're not experts on that stuff, but the thing that, that strikes me the most is, is the disparities in his crimes. I mean, it, it seemed to me that he just had no boundaries. Impulsive is a great word for that because he just did, seems like he just did whatever he wanted whenever he wanted. He was unpredictable. He, didn't think about stuff before he did them. He didn't have much forethought before committing a crime. And if he got caught doing these things, what didn't he get caught doing? Well, if we look at his history and what he actually did before the Clark Station murder that kind of fits in with a crime like this is, one, he has experience with money fraud because he cashed those two bad checks that got him one to three years in prison. And like you just said, if he got caught doing that, what didn't he get caught doing? Well, we want to know, why did you get one to three years in prison for money fraud? So we'd like to know the details of how that happened because there must be more to that. He was a very violent. And also you mentioned boundary issues a lot, which is very striking to me too. That term is perfect for him, but more so he has boundary issues with children because of the sexual abuse of the 13-year-old. He robbed somebody on the street for six bucks with a 16-year-old boy in the group of people that did it. And Bill was only 18 at the time of his murder. And Gatson was 36. And if he has no regard for uh, a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old, I doubt that he would for an 18-year-old. I call Bill a boy a lot. I think that he, you know, he was just a boy when he was killed at 18. I think a lot of typical people might have the same sentiment, especially those who are in their 30s and might be parents. But I really don't think Gatson would have that sentiment based on his uh, past behaviors. And then in 1984, he had to plead guilty to a burglary of another business. So this is all before the Clark Station murder. And I think he fits the crime. 
looking at his profile for me, and it's just a personal opinion, I, I don't think he had any limits on what he would do. I mean, when you look at the everything he did, I think given the situation, like you said, with the boundaries, especially with the younger people, him being in his 30s, he did look at, at Bill Little as a teen and he didn't care. So if something came down, I don't think he'd have any problem taking a life. If, to me, if you're um, accused of rape and you have multiple charges of sexual misconduct and things like that as well, you're showing a disregard for life in general. So I don't think that uh, there's anything here to suggest that he wouldn't commit a murder. That's my own personal take on it, just based on this guy's long history of violence. So that one, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not funny. Seven seven people attacked one person and they got six bucks. <laughs> Why are seven people attacking one person? Jamie said, oh, they got a buck a piece. <laughs> oh, yes. To me, the mentality shows just a group of people that just want to go beat up on someone. Okay. It's just a mentality of violence and that whole disregard for life. Because you're right, $6. What's the point? You're not you're not really there to get any money. Right. And isn't that the whole point of this crime that happened to Bill Little? Is that what they get, Tammy? What was the exact dollar amount? It was less than 100 bucks. Oh, yeah, 93 something. Yes, and we're all racking our brains with, was this a robbery gone wrong? for a low amount of money or was this a murder because someone wanted to kill him well you know if it's somebody with no regard to human life maybe he was a little bit more um apt to hurt somebody than a you know a normal robber would be and it leaves us feeling with that you know the feeling again why wasn't this guy thoroughly investigated why was he given a pass why was he cleared these questions are not answered well when we look through his uh, you know, the, what, what got me about the timeline of his crimes, you know, he did all of these horrific things and then, then they just stopped. They stopped nailing him to the wall for it. He stopped going to prison. It was uh, over and over and over after that certain date when he went to prison. Uh, I think the last time was for the, the, the soap sock. And, you know, the urine and the shaving cream mixed together on the guards. And then he and and after he got out for that stint, he didn't go back to prison again, at least not according to McLean County records. He was out doing things. And and I'm like, why are they not throwing the book at him? Yeah, he was still racking up a list of bad behavior. He never stopped being who he was, but he saw no jail time. That, that was it was probation over and over and over and then just just jail like 60 days in jail for this I, I just thought that was crazy that they weren't throwing the book at him so it, it really made me think that he would he may have been an informant or something like right. that that really makes my radar go up obviously the it's like a red flag the low uh, you know the lenient punishments weren't an attraction at all you know 60 days didn't seem to bother him he'd come right back out and do something else he had no fear. It seems like it is what I mean. I like. I think that goes with your narrative. He didn't have any fear of a long prison sentence. I'll tell you one thing. If I went to jail for 60 days, I'd come out and be a saint the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I know, mean, right? He just didn't have that mentality. He didn't. And it could just be his mind. His brain could be just set up to be a bad dude. I mean, that's just, that happens too. But it seems to me like he didn't really feel like he was going to face any major punishment. Yeah. You know, we mentioned the, I know uh, Leslie just did, mentioned the robbery gone wrong. If we accept that Gatson is a great alternative suspect, he certainly seems like one to me. 
then do we accept that this was a robbery gone wrong? I, I mean, the point is, is, is we don't know what happened. No one does. The state has a theory, but it's just speculation. I mean, that's, that's a theory. We believe there was a struggle, which could have happened with Gaston as well. Obviously, the guy didn't have a problem physically attacking someone or confronting people in a physical way. He lived very close to the gas station. If he frequented Clark, the state's theory may be partially correct and that he may have shot Bill because he maybe he thought Bill recognized him which is what they said uh, Jamie did. That was their theory. Bill may have argued with with him because he didn't consider him dangerous. If Gaston was just a weird dude who hung out at the store sometimes, I mean, it's it's unknown. The point is, is this, this doesn't appear to have been explored, which I think is the, you know, the point of looking at the alternative suspects and the fact that they didn't explore it. Even though the guy is a twin to the composite, lived within a mile of the station, has a violent history, and has no alibi during the time of the crime, um, it could have been a revenge thing as well. We don't know. We don't know if he knew Bill. We don't know if there was a relationship there. Uh, we don't know if he just walked in there and decided to take the drawer and pop him off. Who knows? Right. In our previous episodes, we've discussed that, that it could have been a revenge killing. We, we've discussed robbery gone wrong. But I think you pointed out correctly that we just don't know as far as that goes. But I think that when looking at this guy, I don't think he'd have any problem with violence. If any chance for a scuffle or a fight or any interaction with another person that was violent came up, I think he'd happily jump in. Right. And the state was saying this all happened over a pack of cigarettes. Bill wouldn't give them for free. So, you know, we know that's not true, even if it's with Gatson, because no cigarettes are even missing. But he was so unpredictable and impulsive that would fit with him. He hurt somebody really badly for one dollar was his cut. So, of course, he would do something like that for cigarettes. So, you know, it seems like if the state was onto something there, why didn't they go with someone like this? Why did they go for for Jamie, who had a family and didn't hurt people and, you know, was loved by people around him? This is just very weird. Why didn't they talk to this guy's ex-wife? They talked to Tammy Snow nonstop. What about this guy's ex-wife? Well, well, maybe they did. We don't know because, you know, there's uh, five pages after that report that are redacted. So, you know, we we really don't know uh, what's behind those, but hopefully we'll, we'll find well, out. Well, yeah, and the interesting thing is the tip said, so the daughter said, why is my daddy in the paper? So who made that tip then? Obviously a caretaker. So um, somebody was willing to talk to the cops and had an inkling, a feeling that he's a bad guy and was willing to, you know, in his own family, go against him. So he just totally dropped the ball on that one. And you have to know, I, I mean, in the police report, it says brought my daughter over. So obviously, was it supervised visits? Was it, you know, what, like what was going on there? He didn't have custody of the child. He didn't say dropped her off. They came by for 10 minutes. You know, we really don't know what was going on there either. It'd be interesting if they're, if those five pages actually have a follow up. You and Ray, obviously you've seen a ton of redacted stuff, but this is five solid pages that are just completely redacted. The entire thing. 
Yeah, that's and that's over and over and over and over. That's why we we filed the lawsuit. But, you know, this was one thing that they would not give us. Yeah. The documents that uh, are going to be posted are the one post lawsuit, the final ones that they gave us. That's everything you were able to get. And it still did not contain anything from these five pages. Exactly. They're still redacted. So it might be in the 8,000 pages that Jamie We'd just really love won. to see. Uh, now that those have been, Jamie's been given rights to access those 8,000 pages, we're really hoping to get some of these questions answered. And, and most most importantly is is that Jamie's attorneys will be able of course. to see those. Right. You know, everything that they're going to give them will be unredacted. It'll just be birth dates and social security numbers that are redacted and everything else will be unredacted. Obviously so. the the legal standpoint here is the most important thing is lawyers are finally going to get to go through all of this and then hopefully use it uh, because yeah. we'd love to see it too, just for our personal feelings, but the legal aspect of it's far more important in that 8,000 pages of missing documents that we were just talking about. There's a listed profile of a killer in there. I mean, would Gatson fit that profile? We don't know, but we'd, we'd really like to know. And that's another thing I think that is just incredible to me that there's an alternative suspect in there and they have another profile of a killer listed in those redacted pages. Did Bob Ruff, he interviewed the former FBI detective, Jim Clemente, who I happen to know, and he formed his own profile. Leslie, what were the results of that profile? Some key things that Jim Clemente pointed out about this crime or that it involved somebody, quote, desperate, somebody high, somebody really pissed off at somebody else. He also said the victim's, quote, biggest risk is the fact that he is at the gas station. That's potentially a location for a robbery. But again, that's for a robbery, not a murder. He also said he didn't think that the victim was shot because he pressed the silent alarm because there was a five-minute delay from the time that the money was taken out of the drawer and when the silent alarm was actually tripped. So something was going on in between those two events. So Jim concluded, quote, he shot him for another reason, and the reason doesn't seem to exist at the gas station. It seems that there is a reason outside of the gas station that elevated Bill Little's risk for murder. Jim concluded that the gas station was the reason for the robbery, not the murder. He pointed out that the suspect took the whole registered drawer and not just the cash, which is, quote, an aspect of staging. And Jim also says to look for someone who is, quote, on the younger side, who is impulsive, who doesn't have a tremendous amount of experience doing his particular crime, which is killing somebody and staging a robbery. He's not going to have like a great long term job. He's going to have issues with relationships. And I think he's probably from the area. End quote. So Gatson matches all of those exactly to a T. Like it's like screaming, jumping off the page at us. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show, give their point of view, or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. 
The tip line is free and confidential. 